Over the last few weeks, we've been looking at reasons why Christianity succeeded. Why was it that by about the third century that Christianity had become the religion of the Roman Empire? Uh, we've gone from maybe a, a thousand Christians just after the time of Jesus to something like five or six million people by about the year 300. I mean, what was the reason for that? And so a couple of the reasons we've already seen over the last few weeks, the first reason we looked at was the fact that the Christians only had one God. It's just something unprecedented apart from in the Jewish world, where in the Greek world there's tens of thousands of gods, and yet for the Christians they say, no, we've just got one, and he does all of it. He covers all of the things that you're looking for in these other gods. Uh, last week we saw that the assurance that Christianity brought. Again, the Greek gods, the tens of thousands of Greek gods were very arbitrary. You just didn't know what they wanted. You didn't know what they were thinking. You had just had no idea what was going on. Yet with the Christian God, he wrote it down. He made it really clear what it was that he wants from his people. And so these reasons in themselves were, were very appealing for the people. The fact that this was just a simpler religion, uh, as opposed to what they were presented with in their own context. But there's another reason, I think, that Christianity really took off. And this is probably one of the primary reasons that Christianity appealed to the people of the time. And it was a very practical reason. And the reason is that the Christians cared. The Christians actually cared about other people. They, they actually took care of other Christians, but they also took care of strangers. And the thing we have to keep in mind in this time is that this is a really hard time to be alive. You know, we, we take for granted, um, certainly for us in the modern West, that life is really quite easy, um, at least in terms of our ability to access food and our ability to access clothing and housing. And, and of course, there's people have difficult circumstances and there's people that, that don't have these things, but it's such a small percentage of our population. For most of us, we just take for granted that we have three meals a day, uh, that we have um, an excess of, of money and, and clothing, and we, we just we, we live in luxury. We live in just so much excess, certainly by comparison to really any other time in human history. And so it's hard for us to imagine a world where the majority of the population are living in abject poverty uh, and that the majority of the population are, are living under the continual threat of diseases and things that we just don't think about anymore, that, that we just don't consider um, these so many different ways in which people would die in these times and in these places. And so to understand Christianity in the first few centuries, we, we really have to understand its world. We have to understand the difficulties that were faced, not just by uh, the, everyday, the everyday people, but also by the Christians as well. Christians weren't exempt from this. Christians were products of their culture, as in every culture and every time and place. And so Christians in the first and second and third centuries were facing the same difficulties and the same challenges that everybody else was facing. And so what Christianity provides or gives impetus towards uh, are solutions. They care about people. They reach out and try to meet the needs of the people that have those needs. And so for outsiders looking in, and certainly for the outsiders who were the recipients of this care, this was a really big deal. And this was very attractive, very appealing, as it would be to anybody uh, you know, we think about charity today. We we think about um, uh, government-funded charities and, and most certainly charities funded by religious organisations and just the the help that that brings, uh, the, the, uh, um, the appeal that that has for those groups that bring that care. And again, it's another thing that we take for granted, that we have charities, we have these organisations who give of themselves in order to take care of the needs of those who don't have as much. And it's, it's hard for us to imagine a world without that. But again, going back to these early centuries, you just simply didn't have that sort of care. 
you, you didn't have anybody reaching out to try to meet the needs. Certainly the Romans didn't care about whether you were poor or rich. I mean, everybody was poor. Uh, if you were if you were starving, that's it. You were starving. There's nothing we're going to do about that. When the Romans collected taxes, it wasn't to put towards uh, welfare or to any sort of charitable needs. The reason the Romans collected taxes was to fund their army, to build roads, to build aqueducts, to build infrastructure. But that's really it. Uh, that, that's that's all that the Romans are going to do for you. If you're stuck, if you're struggling, you're on your own. Sorry to say it. So this is a big shift in the way that we have to think. We have to go from our world into that world of the first century. Another thing we need to consider are some of the the statistics that have changed over the last couple of thousand years. You know, we live in a time where the planet at the moment has about 8 billion human beings. Now, we don't think about it. It's a big number, but we don't really think about that. We just we just are. We we just exist in this culture where there's 8 billion people on the planet but that's only very new Uh, the thing the thing to remember is that in order to sustain a human population you have to produce enough food for those people to exist and so we live on a planet right now that is able to produce enough food to sustain eight billion people now that's only very recent in uh, very very recent development in human ability, in human technology, that we can produce that much food in order to, to provide for that many people. Uh, go back only to, to, to 100 years ago, maybe to the year to about 1900. In 1900, the, the human population was about 1.6 billion people. So in about the last 120 years, we've gone from 1.6 billion to eight, over 8 billion people. That's just exponential growth just in the last century and, and a little bit. Well, go back to 1800 and we're back to 1 billion people. Uh, go back to the year 1000 and we're talking about 250 to 300 million people. Now, it's all guesswork. We've, we don't have the statistics and we, no one was count, doing a head count at the time. But uh, a thousand years ago, we're talking of a human population on the planet of maybe 250 to 300 million people. Well, come back into the Roman time, come back into the first century, and the whole human population on the planet was something like 100 to 150 million people. So it's a very small world that we're talking about. And the Roman Empire itself was about 50 million people. So it's not a big world that we're dealing with. And again, the reason why it's so small is because they just simply don't have the capacity to produce the food and, and, and the necessary requirements to sustain a bigger population. Uh, another uh, sort of scary statistic, but something we have to really be aware of, is that up until only very recently, one in 50 women die in childbirth. And this was always the case up until really the 20th century. One in 50 women will die in childbirth. And it's not because women are incapable of having babies or they're physically incapable of doing that. The simple reason is infection. Uh, A woman would give birth often on a dirty floor or be assisted by a doctor who didn't have soap because soap didn't exist and she would get, get an infection and within a few days of giving birth would be dead. Uh, and that, so that was just a very common thing. You, every woman, every family would know of a woman somewhere in their family who had died in childbirth. Statistically, it was just something that was going to happen. Um, or, or this one, that up, again, up until only very recently, one third of children would die before the age of one. So one third of all children that are born will die before the age of one and half of all children will die before the age of 10. So in order for a family to have two adult children, you have to have at least six babies. That's just a fact. Because you, you know that you're going to lose a lot of your children. In fact, in Athens, they have a, uh, a naming ceremony for children. Uh, it was a, a part of their worship to Athena. They would have a naming ceremony. And what they would do is they would bring the children out at the age of one. And then they would name them. And... They wouldn't do it before the age of one because odds are the kid was going to die. And so we're going to wait until, all right, you survived that first year. There's a good chance you might live now. 
So now we're going to give you a name. Again, for most people, and this is, again, keeping the, these statistics are just scary, but the life expectancy of a typical person in the first century, and again, only up until very recently, probably up until about 1900, the average life expectancy of a person was about 35 years old, maybe even 25, according to some statisticians. statisticians. But generally, about 35 years old is, is what you can expect to live. Now, for us, again, in the West, we take for granted that we're probably going to live to 80, maybe 90 years old. And in a lot of cases, be very healthy and active at that point. But that is, is again, a, a new development. That's something so new in the context of human history, because for most people, you take for granted that if you live to the age of 40, you're really doing well. You're, I mean, you get into your 40s and you're sort of pushing that geriatric sort of age uh, because most people just simply didn't make it there. So this is a tough, tough world that we're talking about. It's, it's a really, really difficult existence and it's not exclusive to one group. This is just standard for all humans on the planet for all times up until only very recently in our history. So what are the reasons for this? What, what was it that caused this situation where you live for such a short time, where half of all children will be dead before the age of 10, where the human population was so restricted? What were the reasons for this? Well, there were two key reasons, and we're going to explore these in a little bit of depth. The first reason was disease. So disease has just always been part of the human story. <laughs> One of the most remarkable things about COVID that we experienced over the last couple of years was the fact that we didn't know how to deal with it. That was probably one of the biggest shocks that we all faced was that, what do you mean you don't have a cure for this? What do you mean we have to stop everything to try to deal with this? Because we've just taken for granted the fact that there's been cures for everything. Uh, it's something to sort of consider. In all of the generations of the human population, let's go back maybe 10,000 generations of humans, it's only been in the last three generations that humans haven't had to think about disease or they, we, we haven't, um, we, we haven't, uh, almost in, in most cases, face death by disease. So for every generation up until three generations ago, you can just assume that the way you're going to die is by some kind of disease. That was just what was going to happen to everybody. So it's only been in the last three generations that for most people, again, certainly in the West, where we just don't think about disease as being the thing that's going to kill us. Now, there are plenty of other things out there that we'll try to, but uh, the common diseases that we've been able to deal with in the last couple of generations that used to kill basically everybody, we just don't think about those things anymore. So disease is just not really a key issue for us, but for everybody and certainly in the first century, disease was the biggest killer. This is what was take, certainly what was taking out children who are smaller, who don't have the physical constitution to, to uh, survive these kinds of things. But for us, again, we just don't sort of consider it. So what was happening? How, how does this, where, where does this disease flourish? What, where does it really take hold? Well, typically it's going to happen in cities. Now, coming into the first century, you're getting larger cities. Now, Rome, the city itself of Rome, was about a million people in the time of the New Testament, which doesn't really sound like a lot. You know, we think about cities today of tens of millions of people in these larger cities. And it's, you know, it's scary to think that the, the, the entire population of two or three large cities on to, in today's world was the entire population of the Roman Empire. Uh, again, we talked about that. There's, it's a different uh, set of numbers. But in Rome itself, you're talking about a city of a million people. Now, to put that into perspective, that was the, by far the largest city that anyone had seen and it was certainly the largest city on the planet and, and was for a long time. Well, that number, that number, in fact, wasn't surpassed until 19th century Victorian London. 
So think about that. For, for 1,900 years, you don't have anything like Rome and that doesn't happen again until very recently in London. So a million people living in Rome from all over the world. Now, these cities are absolute cesspools of disease. You just simply don't have the, the necessary sanitation to handle that. And when a, so when a disease comes in, you know, we, we just sort of had this experience through COVID where everybody had to isolate and, and separate from each other. Well, you simply didn't have that ability to do that in the first century. And so if a disease comes into a city, it's going to take out most of the city because there's just no way of separating yourself and there's no way of being able to stop. You just have to get on with life because there's just no other means of support to take care of you. So in a place like Rome, when diseases come in all the time, they're constantly taking people out. In fact, the only way that these cities can sustain their population is to bring more people in because more people are dying than are being born uh, and certainly that are becoming adults. And so you're constantly having to bring new people to top up the, uh, the, the, the citizenship. You, you just simply can't keep it up through natural birth. So if you're living in a major city, which many people are in this time, well then you, what you're facing is the reality of disease on a regular basis. Now, what makes it even worse is that because what's not helping this is that as you're bringing in this population, you're bringing them in from places that have foreign diseases and these exotic diseases that you're not used to. Now, there are certain diseases that you can build up an immunity to perhaps, but when you're bringing people in from all over the place and certainly when the Roman army is moving all over the world, they're going into new places, coming across new new diseases and new experiences that they just simply don't have any immunity or, or preparation for. So this is one of the – it sort of compounds the problem. I mean, if you're living out in the country or work out on the farms, you're not going to be as exposed to disease because you're just not around so many people. But in the cities where people are living – this is going to be a problem. So diseases are going to continually increase and, and remain. Uh, and for this reason, many people in the population are going to be taken out by these things. So what are the big killers? What are the main diseases that uh, the people are facing in this time? Well, perhaps the, the biggest one is malaria. Now, you've probably heard about malaria. Um, it's still prevalent in parts of the world and it's spread by mosquito bites. So typically, malaria flares up during the hotter seasons uh, when mosquitoes tend to, you know, uh, tend to be more prominent and obviously near areas that, are, that have water around. So in Rome, you've built, you've built a city right next to the Tiber River it's going to have a lot of mosquitoes in the hotter seasons. And if you've been to Rome in the summer, it's a very, very hot place to, to be. So malaria is going to be a common problem. Uh, what does malaria do? Well, malaria can obviously kill, but what it, what it will do is it will kill through fever. So if you, have, if you have malaria, then you've just got malaria. You don't get rid of it. You're just sort of stuck with it. And so what it causes are these severe cyclical fevers that the fever itself being what will often kill you. Now, it can be fatal in adults because the fevers can get quite serious, but generally it's going to make you susceptible to other disease. So your body's fighting off this attack of the mal of malaria and it's weak to everything else. So it's a, it's a coexisting situation. Who it's generally going to kill are children. So because children don't have any sort of built-up immunity and they're very they're smaller, they just don't have the constitution to fight off the disease, malaria is generally going to kill the children. Uh, and so about 50% of children will get this and often die from this disease. So most people are probably going to get it at some point. It's just there's, there's, no, other, there's no other way to deal with it. You're just going to get it as a part of your, <clears throat> as a part of your, your existence. But if the malaria doesn't kill you, then it could be tuberculosis. And this is the other big killer of, uh, of the ancient world. And again, even up until only very recently. Uh, so what tuberculosis does is that it causes weight loss, bodily consumption, and the coughing up of blood. So it's a very brutal disease and it's highly infectious. So you could cough 
and the the droplets or even just breathe and the, the droplets um, can float around for hours that are contaminated with tuberculosis and be inhaled by other people. And so you don't even have to be in the area to be able to spread it. You could have been there a while ago and you've enabled this thing to be spread to the next person that came along. Now, tuberculosis is going to, is the largest killer of adults. Certainly it's going to kill a lot of children, but it's the largest killer of adults. Now, it can be suppressed in your immune system, but remain in the body for years and years in an adult. And so it can come back and, and attack you at any time and you don't even, you don't even expect it. Um, now, if it doesn't kill you, then it could be combined with malaria. So you could get a flare-up of malaria and then the tuberculosis will come along and finish you off because it's been activated. The weak, One of them has caused your weakness of your immune system and the, the other one flares up. And it's all just an absolute nightmare. Now, in a child, it's going to kill the child within three, within a few weeks. The, the children, again, just don't have the capacity to be able to fight against this particular disease. Another one, the other third big killer is typhoid. So what does typhoid do? Well, it causes severe fevers and also weight loss. So how do, typhoid spreads through polluted water and food, whereas uh, tuberculosis through sort of breathing and through that sort of means, typhoid spreads through the water and the food. Now, particularly through water, when you consider that you've got sewage and you've got sanitation in the more advanced cities like Rome, but it's still not very good. It's not like today's sewage treatment plants. Um, it's still fairly primitive. And the other thing to consider is that when you bring in water into these cities, where the water is collected from is very often near the cesspool. And so it's very easy for one to back, for the cesspool to back up and contaminate the, uh, the drinking water or for the Tiber River, for example, to flood and to bring sewage and pollution up into the normal water supply or even just in a household where you don't have running water in the house. And so where you might go and collect water from, you're bringing that up into the kitchen. And also in the kitchen, you've got your toilet. You don't have a flushing toilet system. You go to the toilet in a bucket and then empty the bucket out later on. And this is in a time certainly before soap. So you're constantly contaminating yourself and that spreads into the water or it spreads into the food that you're preparing for the children. Again, you don't have any ability to wash your hands after you go to the toilet. And so if you've got typhoid, then that's going to spread through into whatever it is that you touch. And so there's this continual cycle of this disease, all of these vectors of contact that, well, it's almost, it is impossible for this thing to stop. Uh, and so what happens with typhoid is that it will pass through your uh, digestive system and then it will go back into the sewage system it doesn't stop with you it just continues through you and then moves on to contaminate the next person so it's a terrible terrible disease uh, and again as with um, as with tuberculosis it will be fatal in adults but generally it will mix with other diseases so you might have had malaria the malaria has weakened your immune system the typhoid comes along and that will do you in that's that's the way you're going to die and again, children are the ones who are the most susceptible to this particular disease. So for all of these reasons, your life expectancy just by disease alone is cut short because there's no way of stopping these. There's no cure for these. There's no understanding of how this stuff spreads. You know, we talked last week about the gods. Well, when you see something like this happening, the assumption is that the gods are angry. The gods have done something wrong. We've done something to offend the gods and they've sent this disease and that's what's killing us and wiping us out. So what do we need to do? Which god do we need to approach in order to, to deal with this? Well, enter the solution that most people turn to and that was the god Asclepius. So the we talked last week about the different gods and all of the gods have their own different functions and different uh, elements of society that they engaged with. And those are the gods that you turn to for help on different matters. Well, given a world where everybody's constantly facing these fatal diseases, you're going to have a want, you're going to want to have a really powerful God of healing. Now, one of the gods of healing was the God Apollo. Well, Apollo had a son, 
and his name was Asclepius. Now, Asclepius was born of Apollo, the god, but also of a mortal woman named Coronis. So this is a common thing that happens is that the gods would impregnate uh, human, regular humans and give birth to half god, half people. So think about heroes like Achilles, who was sort of a half god, half man. Well, in the case of uh, Asclepius, he's also one of these heroes. So he's born to a mortal woman, but his father is a very powerful god. So after he's born, Coronis is ashamed of the illegitimacy of this child because obviously Apollo didn't marry her because she doesn't exist and he doesn't exist. It's all a myth. But see, he, he's not sticking around to raise the child. He's going to go off and do the things that gods do. And so she's stuck with this baby and shamed by the illegitimacy of him, she abandons him. So anyway, Apollo comes along and picks up his duties as a dad and is therefore raises now Uh, Asclepius. So what he passes on to his son is the gift of healing and the secrets of medicine using plants and herbs. So uh, uh, Asclepius is raised essentially as a doctor. In fact, uh, Asclepius, his symbol was a snake and it was a snake wrapped around a staff. So if you look at a lot of uh, modern um, the, the, the logo or the symbol for modern medicine, it's a snake wrapped around a staff. And that comes from Asclepius. That was what he carried around. The snake was believed to have certain powers of healing. And so Apollo raises him, but he's also tutored by a centaur named Chiron. Now, so he also passes on his own wisdom and understanding of, of medicine and, and this sort of thing. Well, anyway, uh, Asclepius becomes a very powerful god, a very powerful healer, uh, to the extent that he has the ability to raise the dead. Now, this is really scary for the gods and particularly for Zeus. So Zeus, remember, is the father of the gods and certainly the father of Apollo. And so this, the fact that you've got this human who has the capacity to give life, well, this narrows or closes the divide between the eternal gods and humans. One of the chief differences between gods and humans is that gods are immortal. Gods can't be killed. Well, if now we've got a situation where humans can live forever, then what separates them from the gods? So Zeus is angry about this. He's very jealous of the power of Asclepius, and so he kills him which is he tends to do with people that he doesn't like. And so he kills him with a thunderbolt, and now Asclepius is dead. But what that means is that he moves into this god status. He becomes a, a hero. He, he lives on uh, and his power remains, or certainly his ability to heal remains. And so what starts to happen now in the ancient world, what pops up in different places around the world, are these temples to Asclepius. They're, and they're, they're more than temples, in fact. They're more like um, health centers, so there's a couple of really prominent ones, and there's one particularly in a place called Epidavros. Now, if you want to watch the YouTube video for this week, you'll see uh, that site. You can still go and visit Epidavros today uh, and go and visit the, the healing sanctuary. Uh, another uh, really major one is in the city of Pergamum. So you can even Google them and just have a look at Asclepius in Pergamum and, and uh, in Epidavros. Wonderful, just beautiful sites to, to go and visit. Well, anyway, what you would find uh, in these cities are these sanctuaries to, uh, to Asclepius. And they would have naturally a temple to the god, but they'd have other things too. They would have a theater or they would have a library or, you know, libraries and gardens. And it was just a big, beautiful health spa, not unlike the things that we would go and visit today, where you would go and spend a few days and give yourself an opportunity and hopefully ask the God to cure you, to help you with whatever it is that you have that needs to be dealt with. And so there was a process that goes along with receiving this sort of healing from Asclepius. And the first thing, of course, as with all of the gods, you have to be ritually purified. Uh, before you approach any gods, you have to be clean. You don't, you can't go into their sanctuaries all tarnished and sullied and filthy. You need to be cleaned first of all. 
And so then you would bring an offering to the God. So like every other God, you would be clean and you would bring an offering. You would bring some sort of bribe effectively, or you would be paying the God for the God's services. And then what you would do in Asclepius's temple is that you would be sent away to spend a night in a part of the sanctuary. So that you, you go to the one in, in Epidavros today, uh, sorry, in um, Pergamum today, and you see all of these little, um, these little sleeping quarters, these little, just the size of a bed, these, these little rooms where you go in and you would sleep there in the night. And the expectation would be that you would get visited by the god, he would come and he would give you a vision or a word or some sort of prophecy. Now, typically the people are going to sleep under the influence of some pretty heavy drugs. They would get you pretty high on some crazy stuff and then you would go to sleep and the uh, hallucinations were pretty much standard. And so you would have these dreams or this word from the God or whatever it is that you received, and you would bring that back to the priest. And then it was up to the priest to then interpret whatever it was that you need to do. Much like we saw last week with Apollo, you would have a word from the, the oracle, and then you would have to go and interpret, or get the interpretation and go and do that. Well, this is what you would do as well with Asclepius. And so having interpreted then what this thing was you would then be given your cure. You would have to, this is what you would have to do in order to treat the disease. So having done all of that, and particularly if you've got the cure, if, you've, if, if it's dealt with whatever the problem was, then you would make a cast, you would make a mold of whatever part it was that was healed. And so go to, you go to places like Corinth and you go to the museum there and you've got all of these body parts in, in like plaster and they were offerings brought to the God. Same in Epidaphras in the museum there. You see these examples. And there's a great one in the museum where you've got this pair of ears. And supposedly the person who has come to see Asclepius was deaf. And having come in to the temple and, and left, they, they've got their hearing back. And so you've got this, uh, this mold, this, um, this sculpture of this person's ears as a sign of gratitude for the healing that was brought by the God. And so disease is the big killer. These three diseases are really what everybody has to face. And you're inevitably going to get these and you're going to die at a young age because of this. So this is a continual fear that everybody has. Every parent is living in continual fear that this child that they've just had will very likely die. Uh, and if they get a disease, there's nothing they can do about it. That's it. It's done. So this is a, life is hard. Life is really, really hard for this reason. So when the Christians come along, what do they have to offer? Well, one of the things that you see in the Gospels continually is Jesus performing miracles, performing healings. There was, of course, there was the, uh, the, the spiritual sort of the prophetic reason that he does that as a means of confirming his messiahship. But at a more basic level, it was to meet the needs of people who were sick, people who were faced with diseases that we just don't even think about anymore. And so when you look at the apostles going out into this Greek and Roman world, they're facing the same challenges. The people that they're meeting are all dealing with the same stuff. And so what they lead with, one of their primary ministries is healings because that's primarily what people need because everybody is facing these horrific diseases. And we see an example of this in Acts 19 11. It says, God did extraordinary miracles through Paul so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured and the evil spirits left them. So that's the first big reason that, uh, well, that Christianity succeeds and, and one of the first major needs that the Christians offer support with. But the second one is even more practical than that, and that's the matter of poverty. The fact is that up until, again, only very recently, but certainly in the first century, the, the, something like 85 to 90% of the human population live at subsistence level poverty. 
that's just a fact of life. You have just enough, hopefully, to get through the day. Uh, but for most people, most of the time, you probably only have enough for maybe one meal a day, if that. And that's just it. There's going to be days where you just simply don't have enough food to eat. Uh, certainly not enough to feed the family. So poverty is just a standard feature of the ancient world. Everybody, apart from the very few percent who have everything, everybody else is faced with this reality that you only have just enough to get by and any hope of getting beyond that is is a fantasy. You're just simply not going to get out of that situation. You don't have the means to do that. And so poverty and starvation are just what everybody has to come face to face with. In fact, the average height of a person in the first century was about five and a half feet. Now, I'm six feet. I'm a pretty average sort of height. For most people back then, the average height was five and a half feet. They were all very short people. And the reason for that was that during their developmental years as children, they just simply didn't have enough protein in order to to develop, to, to build, to grow properly. So everybody from the day they were born was faced with starvation, was faced with just not having enough to be able to grow and to be able to function normally. So how do you overcome this? What, what is the way that you deal with this or try to help to meet the needs that you have, uh, your own personal needs? Well, again, we think today about charity, we think about government um, support where if you do fall on hard times, there are all of these other means in order to help just to pay for the necessities, you know, to put, give you housing, to give you food. We don't really think about a circumstance where we're not going to have access to those things. Well, in a time before that sort of care, you have to look after each other. And so this is a key difference really between our world and the world of the first century where for those guys, it was all about community. If you don't have community, you're going to die. You just simply don't have the means of support that are necessary for survival. So everybody has to be in community. Everyone has to have people around them in order to have that means of support in those difficult times. And so for everyone, the first means of community that you have is your family. Family is absolutely essential. And we're going to look at this in the coming weeks of how important family was as just a basic means of production. Everyone in the family has to contribute. There, you, you have a role to play. And so everyone's got to chip in and contribute towards the, just the basic survival of the family. But then beyond the family, you have the village. And so you've got families and extended family relations and, and networks that are also there to help support. So you've, you're constantly surrounded by people and this together helps to mitigate some of the challenges that you're faced with. You've got people there to help you. But what happens if you don't have family around? Now think about these big cities that we talked about before. When people are coming into those cities, what they're leaving behind very often is a family. And they're leaving behind certainly the village and they're leaving behind the community that maybe their parents and grandparents had grown up in. And now they're coming into these big cities of, maybe, of a million people in Rome where you don't have these networks. You, you've, you've left behind all of these primary means of support that you would have otherwise had. Where do you turn to in those circumstances? Well, what you would look for is some sort of association. So what begins to emerge is these what we call voluntary associations where you would come together into an organized group generally around a trade. So if you think about in Acts 19 where Paul has this run-in with Demetrius the silversmith, and so Demetrius is able to then go away and gather together all of the other silversmiths and metal workers in Ephesus. How was he able to get them together so easily and quickly? Well, because they would have all been part of one of these associations. So the way that you enter into one of these is that you buy, you pay membership. And with that membership, what you get is the support of this group. You have all of these other like-minded or, or people of the similar skill or similar trade. And they would you would have a commitment to this group that you would help each other out if you fell on hard times. Now, beyond that, it wasn't just a charity group. You would have a monthly meal together. 
you would have if you died, um, you would the group would bury you. Very burial is very important in the ancient world, and if you haven't got a family to bury you, someone has to do the proper burial rites so that you could have a proper afterlife. So the idea of this organization was to meet to help to meet the basic needs to be the fallback if you did fall onto hard times, which everybody is likely going to do at some point. Now I've got this inscription here, which is just a, it's a really fascinating inscription. What it is, is that it's a, a members list of one of these organizations. Now it dates to about 43 CE. So about the time that Paul is in his early years as a Christian. So it's a very contemporary example but it's a list of names. Now, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but just to give you, a, the, I'll read the first few names out of the members of this particular group and just have a listen to the way that these guys describe themselves. So it starts off with Cronion, son of, Herodot, son of Herodus, leader, about 35 years old with a scar on his left chin, uh, on his left shin. On, Oniferous, son of Nephorus, about 40 years old with a scar on the left eyebrow. Uh, Penkibus, son of Maris, about 38 years old, with a scar on his forehead to the left above the eyebrow. Uh, Panaceus, son of Hemisius, about 30 years old, with a scar on his right eyebrow. Sigurus, son of Pachebcus, about 29 years old, with a scar on his forehead to the left by the temple. Pachebus, son of Sigurus, about 35 years old, with a scar on his left thumb. And it goes on like this. Now, in total, there are 24 names in this, in, in this inscription. And the way that they're described, first of all, is their name and then son of. So you're not, you don't get it. You don't really have a surname. What you've got is that you're the son of a particular person and or you're obviously the son of your father. And, and that's how you identify yourself. You're the son of whoever you are. But then it always says with regard to their age, about a certain age, so about 32 years old, for example. Now, why didn't they say this person's 32 years old? Well, they weren't sure because you don't have birth certificates in the ancient world. You, it's guesswork. You were told by your parents when you're old enough to know, you know, okay, you were born about, you know, four or five years ago, and then you've just got to keep count. And you don't quite know when your birthday is, but you just sort of keep a general guess of when it was that you were born. And so you never actually even know exactly how old you are. And this, this is true for everyone. No one's ever 100% sure even how old they are. But what's most interesting about these people is that every one of them is described by a scar. Everyone has a distinguishable scar at some prominent place in their body, usually the head, but often in the, sometimes in the shin or in other parts of their body, but somewhere that's visible. So we're not talking about a little scar, like a little shaving cut. You know, I've, I've got a scar from when I was eight years old. Um, I got hit with a paddle bat. And, you, you know, if you look closely, you can see it. But you, I'd have to point it out to you um, to, to know where it is. Now, these are scars where if you stand back from the person, it's really obvious that there is a big scar right there on their face. Now, where do these scars come from? Well, work. <laughs> just from doing their jobs because life is really hard in the ancient world. It's just a really difficult place to be. There's certainly no occupational health and safety around to make sure that you don't injure yourself at work. There's no protective gear. You get injured and if you don't die, well, well done. Get back to work the next day. That's just how it is. But what's even more interesting about this list is that of the 24 names, only two are above the age of 40. Everybody else is in their 20s and 30s, and there's nobody else really above that because most people are dying before the age of 40 because life in the ancient world is really, really difficult. But what this group would have been and, and what was so important about having your name on this list is that it meant you belonged. You had a group. Somebody was there that was going to take care of you in a hard time, and so you do everything you can to remain on that list because that's your new family now. Those are the people that are going to be there for you in those difficult times. And so it's into this context that Christianity steps. Christianity meets the needs of 
helping you when you are sick and there's, there's healings and there's miracles that go along with that. But at an even more practical everyday level, the Christians help to meet each other's needs. It's certainly, most and certainly in the cities where people have left their families behind and they've left their communities behind. Christianity emerges in the cities in the ancient world. It doesn't emerge in the villages. It emerges in the big cities. And so in those places, you've got people who are potentially isolated or people that maybe have a group that is not a very good group or whatever it might be, but they're looking for a family. They're looking for a group that's going to help to meet those needs for them and for them to be able to help meet the needs of other people as well. And so what Christianity provides is a very basic service of helping you in your poverty, helping you in your starvation. You know, think about the words of Jesus where he says, you know, when you pray, pray, Father, give us today our daily bread. That's not some spiritual word or, you know, pray for God to give you some deep revelation today from his word. No, no, no. That was a really practical prayer. You don't know where you're going to get food from today, so ask God for it because you have no other means means of support. So this is what Christians are helping to meet. What we, so this, this exchange network, this mutual exchange between them. And so there's two levels to this. The first one is that you're expected to meet your own needs. And this is true for ancient, all ancient societies, for all societies. You look after yourself first and foremost. You don't become a burden on other people. And this was a challenge that some of the Christians faced, some of the communities faced, is people just coming along and taking advantage of them. And we're going to deal with this uh, in, in the coming weeks of this sort of context. But your first priority was to meet your own needs. Um, you don't want to be a burden on other people. And so as an example, in 2 Thessalonians 3, Paul talks about when he was there in Thessalonica and about the way that he looked after himself. He says that in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we command you, brothers and sisters, to keep away from every believer who is idle and disruptive and does not live according to the teaching you receive from us. What was this teaching? Well, the teaching was to look after yourself, to work hard and to support your own needs. So if a person has been lazy and disruptive, what they're doing is coming into the community and just taking advantage of your kindness. So don't even associate with those people because they're not there for the right reason. They're just there to abuse you. But he says, you know, for you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. We were not idle when we, when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's food without paying for it. On the contrary, we worked night and day, laboring and toiling so that we would not be a burden to any of you. We did this not because we did not have the right to such help, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you to imitate. For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule, the one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. Now, it seems like a harsh rule, but what he's saying here is that if you've got people who are coming into the community who are not working, who are not helping to contribute for their own needs and to the needs of others, then they don't get to eat. They don't get to take advantage of what you've worked hard for because there's just not enough to go around. There's barely enough to support you, let alone for you to have to support other people who just don't want to do anything for themselves. So don't let those people take advantage of you, is what Paul's saying here. So first of all, you've got to look after your own needs. But then secondly, with your excess, that needs to go towards helping other people. So in 2 Corinthians 8, he says, Our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard-pressed, but that there might be equality. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need, so that in turn their plenty will supply what you need. The goal is equality. As it is written, the one who gathered much did not have, did not have too much, and the one who gathered little did not have too little. So what's happening in this situation is that he's taken up an offering for Jerusalem and the Christians in Jerusalem are going through a particularly hard time. And so he's saying to the Philipp to the Corinthians here, hey guys, look, you've got some excess. Can you contribute some of that, the, the stuff that you don't need towards the people that have needs? Now there's going to come a time where you might have needs and they have excess and they can help you and all of this exchange, keep, you know, it all go, comes around. But for the moment... We need your help to help those others because there is an excess there. So there are two priorities in this community. The first priority is, number one, to look after yourself. 
to take care of your own needs. And then if you have excess, to contribute that towards the needs of others. Now, your excess might not be enough to feed a person a single meal. The excess might only be just a tiny little amount. But if a large group all have a tiny little bit of excess each, collectively, all of that excess becomes enough to maybe support a couple of people. And so you work together as a group to help meet your needs, but also to meet the needs of those who are struggling as well. So this is one of the key reasons why Christianity succeeded, is that they were really good at this charity. You know, charity wasn't even a concept until the Christians came along. But what they brought about was this new idea of taking care of the sick and taking care of those who are hungry and who are in poverty, which is most people. So I want to finish this with a quote, and this will be sort of, uh, this sort of finishes the last couple of weeks that we've been going through some of these reasons why Christianity succeeded. But really what it boils down to is this, and I'll read this quote, it's from, uh, from Rodney Stark, um, from a book that he wrote. He says this, he says, the power of Christianity lay not in its promise of otherworldly compensation for suffering in this life, as has so often been proposed. No, the crucial change that took place in the third century was the rapidly changing awareness of a faith that delivered potent antidotes to life's miseries here and now. The truly revolutionary aspect of Christianity lay in the moral imperative such as love one's neighbor as oneself, do unto others as you would have them do to you. It is more blessed to give than to receive. And when you did it to the least of my brethren, you did it to me. These were not just slogans. Members did nurse the sick, even during epidemics. They did support the orphans, widows, the elderly, and the poor. They did concern themselves with a lot of slaves. In short, Christians created a miniature welfare state in an empire which, for the most part, lacked social service. Well, I hope this has been helpful these last few weeks. Next week, we're going to change topics again. But uh, anyway, as I say, I hope this has been helpful. And uh, well, I'll see you next week. All the best. Bye-bye.